When it comes to being the representative of an organization that Christ started, it's got to be a New Testament church, and it always has been down through the centuries. I'm not saying that you can't get saved in other places. I'm not saying that at all. There are many who've gotten saved outside New Testament churches, and I'm not saying that other organizations have not done some good, but I am saying that God has ordained for New Testament church to be the institution that carries out the Great Commission, and we have a promise from Christ that the devil cannot destroy it, but he can skew it, and he can cause a smokescreen. And I think one of the main ways he has done that is with this business of this universal, worldwide, mystical, invisible, quote-unquote, church by promoting this doctrine. Does it really matter? I want you to listen very carefully to the end. I think you'll agree with me when we're done that it really does matter. The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power, featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skeving. Let's take our Bibles, please, and turn to the Gospel of Matthew and the 16th chapter, Matthew chapter 16. We're in a series on Back to the Basics, as you know, and we're going to be talking today about the error of the universal church. And I know that doesn't sound uh, that exciting, might not give you goosebumps, but it's not really a dry subject. We could go a lot deeper on it than we'll be going here, but enough to realize the ramifications of, of believing the universal, invisible church philosophy. In Matthew chapter 16 and in verse number 18, Christ says, And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock... I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now that comes on the heel of a, heels of a proclamation that, that Peter had made to where he said, Thou art the Christ, the Messiah, and probably feeling pretty good about himself. Jesus reminds him that he didn't come up with that, but that God showed it to him. And then he makes a further point, kind of a metaphor, analogy here, by, by using a particular wording here in verse number 18. He says, And I say also unto thee that thou art petros, meaning a pebble, a small stone. He says, And upon this rock, and I believe he's pointing to himself at that point, the word petra, different word, he says, I will build my church. He didn't say, Peter, uh, I'm going to build your church, or or, Peter, you're going to build my church. He makes it very clear. He's the rock, And he's going to build his church. And later on, as Peter pens his epistle, he refers to Christ as the rock or the stone as well. So there's no question about who the church was founded upon, the Lord Jesus Christ. But the question is, what kind of a church is it? And that's what we're going to be talking about. So let's pray before we begin. Father, we need your help. This is important. And it's line upon line, precept upon precept. Help us to listen carefully that we might be helped and that we might... Realize the magnitude of the local church, and Father, have a reverence for it, and Father, serve faithfully within it. We ask it now in Jesus' precious name, amen. As we go back to 590 AD, we find who was officially the first pope, a fellow by the name of Gregory the Great. 
church was founded in, in Rome, the Roman Catholic Church. And then if you bump up some years to about 1050 AD, you find a fellow by the name of Arthenagoras who founded the Orthodox Church. And then if you, you fast forward another thousand years or roughly, you come up to 1520 AD and you find the Lutheran Church founded by Martin Luther in Germany. And then you just keep going from there, and it was around that same time that Henry VIII founded the Episcopal Church, also known as the Anglican Church, also known as the Church of England, and it was found in England. And then in 1536, just a few years later, John Calvin uh, founded the uh, Presbyterian Church in Switzerland. And then you go up to 1740, and you have the Wesley brothers, primarily John, founding the Methodist Church in London or in England, but that's where the, the religious liberty shoots over to the U.S. And then you find a number of churches founded here in, in the States uh, at that time. You've got Alexander Campbell starting the Church of Christ in 1827. You've got Joseph Smith uh, founding the Mormon Church in 1830. And then you've got William Miller founding the Seventh-day Adventist Church in 1831. And then you have uh, Charles Taze Russell founding uh, an organization he called the Jehovah's Witnesses in 1885. You have Breeze founding the Nazarene Church in 1907. And in 1914, you've got the modern-day Pentecostal or charismatic movement founded by Parham. But you'll notice I didn't mention the Baptists anywhere there. Where did they come from? Well, you can back up the other way, and, and right around 1100 A.D., you have the Waldenses, who were known as the Anabaptists, but you keep backing up, and you find the Albigenses in 1000 A.D., also known as the Anabaptists. The Anna, uh, Latin for re, referring to rebaptizers, and that's a name their enemies gave to them. But you back up even further and you find the Paulicians in 600 A.D. You back up further toward the time of Christ and you find the Donatists in 300 A.D. And then you're getting a lot closer when you come to the Novatians in 200 A.D. And then even around 100 A.D. you find the Montanists who are also known as Anabaptists. And so where did the Baptists come from? The Baptists come from the first century. The Baptists come from the apostolic days. History proves that. In fact, Cardinal Hoseus, who was a very famous uh, Roman Catholic historian, said in 1500 A.D. at the Council of Trent, he said, were it not for the fact that the Baptists have been grievously tormented and cut off with the knife over the past 1,200 years, they would swarm greater than all reformers, quote-unquote. And those aren't the words of a Baptist. So you've got 30 A.D., you've got Jesus Christ, you have Israel as the founding place, and you have the birth of the New Testament church, which we believe is a Baptist church, and there's reasons for that. The very name itself, if you stop and you think about it, Christ was baptized, and the apostles were also baptized by John the Baptist. That, that's a name for him. I hear some radio preachers sometimes say, John the baptizer, and that's not being true to the Scriptures. It was a name given to him from God. The Bible says there was a man sent from God. And so you've got Christ and the apostles baptized by John the Baptist. I've said before, if you're baptized by a Catholic priest, you're, you're a Catholic. If you're baptized by a Mormon elder, you're a Mormon. If you're baptized by a Lutheran minister, you're a Lutheran. But look who baptized Jesus and the disciples who made up the first church. Historically speaking, uh, we don't have time to give you the history, but you will find the Baptists, a trail of Baptists and the trail of blood as well, 
all the way back to the time of Christ in the first century. And then you also find the Baptist churches passing the doctrinal test since the time of Christ. There, there have been those who have stayed true to the, the tenets of the New Testament. Now, here we find in Matthew chapter 16, Christ is talking. He says, And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock, notice these words, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Our key word there is church, but Christ also says that the devil would not get to the church. And we have a promise from Christ himself that Satan cannot destroy the church. That's a promise. But the devil has certainly been busy skewing what the church is and erecting a smokescreen when it comes to the church and confusing people about the church. And why would he do that? Well, let me quickly give you a few verses. Here's one. In Ephesians 3.10, it says that it might be known by the church, the manifold wisdom of God. I've said it many times. There's something special and something especially given to Scripture New Testament churches when it comes to the manifold wisdom of God. And there's a lot of confusion out there. And there's a lot of skewing of the truth. And so I stick by the New Testament church and, and hang on to it because it's a source, I believe, of, of truth. We find also that it says in 1 Timothy 3.15, to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. And notice these words, the pillar and ground of the truth. Again, something special about truth and the New Testament church. And, and otherwise, it's a free-for-all out there, folks. There are, there are a number of mavericks out there in, in parachurch organizations that are just confusing people to death. And so we need the truth. And there's something about that truth being aligned with the New Testament church. Here's another verse. Ephesians 3.21. Here it is. Unto him that is God be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. That's a powerful verse that tells us that Christ has now also and always will receive glory in, through, and by a Scripture New Testament church. That makes the church pretty special. I believe the church is the only institution that, that Christ gave the commission to to evangelize the world. Others, others are doing it. And, and that's, that's fine, but when it comes to being the representative of, of an organization that Christ started, it's got to be a New Testament church, and it always has been down through centuries. I'm not saying that you can't get saved in other places. I'm not saying that at all. There are many who've gotten saved outside New Testament churches, and I'm not saying that other organizations have not done some good, but I am saying that God has ordained for New Testament church to be the institution that carries out the Great Commission, and we have a promise from Christ that the devil cannot destroy it, but he can skew it, and he can cause a smokescreen. And I think one of the main ways he has done that is with this business of this universal, worldwide, mystical, invisible, quote-unquote, church by promoting this doctrine. Does it really matter? I want you to listen very carefully to the end. I think you'll agree with me when we're done that it really does matter. The first truth about the church is that it started during the ministry of Christ. 
In fact, it's, it's going on right here in Matthew 16, 18. As we read this, it's underway. And he is separating these men into a, a New Testament church and, and starting the institution of the church. That church would be self-propagating, meaning growing and expanding. It would be self-governing. It would not get some uh, instructions from headquarters or the Vatican somewhere. It would be self-governing, and it would be self financing. It would be a sovereign, separate, autonomous institution, and that's the true church. Now, there's the the error of the universal church, and a lot of this can be traced even in our circles to a man by the name of Schofield who wrote a Bible with some notes in it that are messed up. And in those notes, you'll find the teaching that the church, quote-unquote, started on the day of Pentecost by Holy Spirit baptism into a universal kind of worldwide church. Nobody can see it, and and it's not assembled, but it's a church nonetheless. This teaching actually, for the most part, goes back to around 1517 when Luther did tack his, his list of grievances, 95 and all, up on the door of the Wittenberg Chapel, and the Pope wanted his hide. He was hoping to reform the church. He was a Catholic monk, monk himself, but the, the Pope excommunicated him, so he started the Lutheran church. But he had a problem. For, I guess, a thousand years, the Catholic church had been claiming to be the one true visible church. So what did that make him now in his institution? So he came up with the, the, the philosophy, the theory, if you will, of the church not being visible, but being universal, just kind of mystical, worldwide, invisible, made up of all believers, all Christians. And people said, well, that, that, that sounds good. But the truth is that the church did not start on the day of Pentecost to begin with. Christ started the church during his earthly ministry. In fact, in, in, in Matthew 16, 18, he had already called out these men, these men who made up his church members here. There were 12 in all. He was the shepherd or the elder, and the apostles were the first members, and that's the foundation of the church. We find in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, that God has set some of the church, notice, First apostles, and then it goes on from there. So the first members were the apostles, and that church was active. It was doing everything a church should do. They were teaching the, the gospel. They were, they were preaching their winning souls. They were baptizing converts. They were having the Lord's Supper service. They were even having business meetings. They were sending out missionaries two by two, even at a treasurer. And so they, they had everything a church has, and it was a church in, in operation and in action, very much alive and well before uh, Pentecost here. They were even counseling and such. But, but by the time Jesus goes to the cross, he makes a statement. In John 17, 4, he's praying. He says to his Father, I have glorified thee on the earth. Notice, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. What's he talking about? Well, it couldn't be talking about going to Calvary. He hadn't gone there yet. This is just before he goes there. But he said, I've finished the work you gave me to do. I believe it was starting at church. He got the institution of the church underway, and, and now it's up and running. And by the time of Pentecost, we find this said. In Acts 2.41, it says, Then they that gladly received his word, that is, the preaching of the disciples and Peter, were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Notice, that's not the start of the church. 
Because these converts are added to something that's already in existence, right? If they were added unto them, who's the them? Well, it's the church already up and running. And uh, there were at least 120 or more at that time. So we find out that the church was already going before Pentecost. Now, the, the word church is found 114 times in our, our New Testament, and it's the Greek word ekklesia. And the meaning of ecclesia, this Greek word, is congregation or a called out or called together assembly. It cannot be some universal, invisible, worldwide, mystical body because it's got to be in one location. It's got to be called together. It's exactly what I'm looking at right now. It's an assembly. That's what the word ecclesia means. But you say, Pastor, couldn't it have any other meaning? I mean, especially at the time of Christ, could it have had another meaning that would denote something universal and invisible? Well, I I looked up some writers and some authors and some historians at and before the time of Christ just to see what what ecclesia meant to them. There was a fellow in 400 years B.C. or 400 B.C. named Thucydides, and he spoke of, quote, the assembly of the Spartans. He was talking about the congregation of the, the Spartans. He also said the Athenians convened their assembly, and he used the word ecclesia, obviously talking about this assembling of people. In 400 B.C. also, Aristophanes said, said this. In a quote of his, he talked about how they forbade calling an assembly of the Thracians. An assembly means ecclesia. And then uh, Demosthenes said in 325 B.C., he spoke of the assembly adjourning suddenly, and he used the word ecclesia. And these were men who used Greek, and, and they used it in that connotation. How many have heard of the apocryphal books? The apocrypha is not inspired. It's not part of the Bible. But it, it has some history in it around that time, uh, before Christ, around Christ, and it even mentions an ecclesia being a congregation. So at the time of Christ, the word ecclesia couldn't have meant anything else but an assembling together of people like we have here. Actually, the word ecclesia doesn't have to necessarily even mean a church. Let me show you a, a few places where it's used in Acts 19 in three different verses. In verse 32, it says, For the assembly was confused. It's talking about this riot taking place in Ephesus. In verse 39, it says, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly. That's not talking about a church. It says, and when he had thus spoken, he dismissed the assembly. It wasn't talking about a church, but all three times, it's the exact same word, ecclesia, that Jesus Christ is using here in Matthew 16, 18. You say, well, how will we know the difference? It's real easy. Jesus said, my church, my assembly, my ecclesia in verse 18. Upon this rock, I will build my ecclesia. So around 30 AD, there was no question whatsoever what the word ecclesia meant. The Romans are said to have given us the roads needed at the time of Christ to take the gospel out. The Greeks are said to have given us the language that we needed to preserve the word of God because it's so specific. And because it is so specific and distinct, We know that a church could only be a called-out assembly, ecclesia. Now, the word ecclesia was used by Christ himself, not only here in verse 18, but 23 times in all. He spoke of a church, 23 times. In in 
In verse 18, he uses the adjective to describe it. He says, my church. I will build my church. And so what he's doing here is not in any way a continuation of, of some institution that, that he took from the Old Testament and just kind of refined it. He is starting something totally brand new here. And, and it's different from all other assemblies. 23 times he spoke of the church. And you might say, well, I wonder which gospel he mentions it most in. Well, actually, he mentions the word church most in the book of the Revelation. We forget, don't we, that he is addressing seven churches there in the book of the Revelation. And, and he, he obviously is talking to local churches, church at Philadelphia, church at Ephesus, a church at Thyatira, a, a church at Smyrna, and Laodicea, and, and, and others. And it's interesting, we find in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 7, that he says this over and over and over. He says, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He's obviously talking about local called-out assemblies, not some universal, invisible kind of church. And then as the Bible is winding down, and, and we're in the very last chapter, he says this in Revelation twenty-two sixteen: I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. If Christ had been an advocate of the church being universal and visible and mystical and worldwide, he would have not used the plural their church is. Think about this. He could have said, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the church, this worldwide church. And, and you'd say, well, now he's referring to all belief. No. He says specifically, I sent my angel to testify unto the churches, as if he expected people to be members of churches, local called-out assemblies somewhere. You know, I think of all the people in the first century there who, who weren't members of a Scripture New Testament church and how they missed this. I mean, he was addressing his churches, and those outside of those churches didn't get it. And that's sad. And that's sad yet today. We have a number of people today that are not aligned with the church. But notice back in our text here again, I want to point something out. Christ says, I will build my church, and he doesn't say churches here, does he? And that's problematic for some folks. It would sound like now, now he seems to be making a reference to some universal church. No, this kind of language is used all the time. He's still speaking of the institution of the church, and, and generically using the word church, but it's made up of individual churches. We do this all the time. Um, I might say the Ford is a good car. Did I get him in? Oh, boy, somebody's backslidden. The Ford is a good car. And, and uh, you would say, is there some universal worldwide car, some Ford that everybody drives? No. We, we use that kind of terminology, don't we? We're, we're, st we're talking about individual Ford cars. Uh, I might say, you know, the dog is man's best friend. And you'd say, well, is there some universal dog? Some, no, we're talking about individual dogs, aren't we? So when Christ says upon this rock, I will build my church, he's using that very same verbiage there, and, and he's talking about local individual churches. When the word church is used in the Bible, sometimes it's generic like this or speaking institutionally, but that's only 20% of the time. 
The other 80% of the time, those 114 times you find the word church in the Bible, 80% of them are talking about individual specific churches. So in our text here, there's no injustice done to the word church here, and there really shouldn't be any confusion that Christ is still talking about local ecclesias, called out assemblies. But here's where the confusion really is. The confusion is, is meshing two expressions together and trying to make them mean the exact same thing. Those two expressions are, first of all, the family of God, and secondly, the church of God, or the church of Christ, or what we, we, we might call the body of Christ. There's, they're not the same thing. The, the family of God and the church are not the same thing, but if you believe in a universal church, you're making them the same thing. The family of God is just that. It's all believers. Old Testament, uh, in between, New Testament, the, the time since the Bible is completed, today, the future believers who will be saved, that's the family of God. Some are on the earth right now, some are in heaven right now, but they are all the saints of all time. We find this in Ephesians 3.15. It mentions God of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. That's the family of God. So it's all believers make up the family of God. But that's not what the church is. You know, Mr. Schofield and Luther and some others tried to make them one and the same, but they are not. And that's where the confusion lies. A church, by definition, is a, a group of born-again, scripturally baptized believers banding together and assembling together to fulfill the Great Commission and glorify Christ at this present time. That's what the church is. And there's 114 references in the Bible. Here's a very good example of it. kind of gives us an idea. Acts 9.31 says, Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Samaria, or on Galilee and Samaria. It's talking about all these individual churches in those various regions there. And, and it says churches had rest. So you've got the family of God, that's all believers. You've got the church of God made up of individual churches. Can I read to you quickly some differences between the two here? First of all, when it comes to the church of, of Christ, which is his body, it's referred to as his body. And let me give you this analogy real quickly. When it comes to the family of God, a family can be scattered I've got relatives who live in Phoenix. I've got, uh, they live in South Carolina. They live in Denver. They live up in War Road. And, and they're scattered. A family can be scattered. My siblings are scattered. But a body cannot be scattered. It would be dead. It, 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 wouldn't, it wouldn't be a body. So keep that in mind. A family, that's, that's everywhere. That's heaven, earth. That's, that's all believers right now. A body has to be together. But let me give you some others. Uh, the body of Christ, the church of Christ, has Christ as its head. Who's the head of the family of God? It's right in the name. God, the title. Uh, the body or church demands a location to assemble. A family can be scattered. Thirdly, baptism qualifies us for membership in the church. What qualifies us for membership in the family of God? Salvation. You just have to be saved. The new birth. Um, fourthly, we are members of a church, a body. I could be giving you scripture if we had time. But we are children in the family. 
So one is member, other is, is child by birth spiritually. Uh, also, the function of the members is key within a church. Relationships are key within the family. Number six, members can be put out of the body, that is the church, but members cannot be put out of the family of God. If you, if you believe in eternal security, you know that's true. See the difference? They're not the same thing. So many things different about them. Number seven, the, the church or the body functions with the authority of Christ as the head, but there is no earthly function for the family of God. Think about that. You're just saved. You're a member. That's great. Uh, number eight, the, the church assembles regularly. The family does not assemble at this time. That'll come in heaven. We'll all get together up there. Number nine, the body of the church has organization to it, but the family of God, none. There's none mentioned in the Bible. Number 10, the church of the body can be offended, 1 Corinthians 10, 32, but the family of God cannot be offended. Number 11, the church or the body needs nourishment. That's why we attend church spiritually to get nourished. Number 11, the the family cannot be nourished. Uh, Number 12, the body of the church needs edification. We need to be, to be edified, but the family cannot be edified. Biblically, no mention of that. Number 13, the body of the church can lose its heavenly recognition. There are churches in the book of the Revelation. Christ threatened to take away their candlestick, didn't he? They can actually lose. And, and think of all those seven churches. None of them around anymore. They've all lost their identity or their recognition. But a family, the family of God, can never lose its recognition. Number 14... The body or the church will give an account to God, not the family of God. Uh, and finally, number 15, the members of the church know and care for one another. But when it comes to family of God, there's no way we can know but even a few and care for a few of the family of God. There are millions of them. So there's quite a difference here. So the church is, is smaller. It's more exclusive. Um, it's more elite. Think of it. That makes it more precious, if you will, or, 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 or valuable, or a place of, of, of blessing. And I'm, I'm glad I live in an area where we have a New Testament church, because most of the world doesn't have that. And it's not something we should take for granted. God help us to comprehend the mystery of the church. It, it's, it's God's best, if I could put it that way. And I think there's going to be some, some lamenting at the judgment seat of Christ when God's people who are members of churches realize what they missed and, and what they took for granted. Now, are we being nitpicky when we talk about the difference between the universal church versus the local church? Well, I read my Bible and I find that God is a God of detail. I find God giving instructions on what to do with a bird nest in the desert when you come across it. I find all kinds of dietary laws what you can eat and what you can't eat. I find God telling us how to deal with widows even. I mean, he's a God of detail. Have you ever read about the tabernacle? It's, it's verse after verse and chapter after chapter and detail after detail. God is a God of detail. And when it comes to the Lord's Supper service, he wants it handled a certain way. And baptism uh, needs to be a certain way. And certainly, the church, God... God doesn't, doesn't make the point within his word that it is a scriptural called-out assembly for no reason whatsoever. It's, it's God's best. It's, it's God's gold. And, and when it comes to serving the Lord, uh, we find this truth here. In Ephesians 5.25, it says, Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. 
He died for the church. He sacrificed his life for the church. Can we do any less than be faithful in it when he gave his life for it? I know one preacher, he said, I, I would no more be detached from a Scripture New Testament church than I would be from Christ. That's quite a statement. I know another who said, I would no more misuse a Scripture New Testament church than I would misuse Christ. I know of someone else who said, I would no more take a church for granted than I would Christ for granted because they're, they're intertwined. Christ loved the church and he gave himself for it. So, why is this a big deal? And what is wrong with the universal church philosophy? Why does it really even matter? Well, let me give you a few quick reasons in closing here. First of all, the universal church theory leads to ecumenicism. It leads to ecumenicism. Ecumenicism simply means a a banding together of all religions, whether they're scriptural or not. Just everybody getting together. And, and if you believe in the universal church, what you have is a misuse of verses on unity. Have you ever read those verses? And it, it sounds like, boy, everybody's just supposed to lock arms and unify. But then you realize, wait a minute, this is talk about local churches. In context, it's not talking about all religions or, or some universal kind of a church here. There are some groups out there that believe you can lose your salvation. There are some groups out there that believe in sinless perfection. There are some groups, groups out there that believe in work salvation or false gifts or, or doctrines of devils downright. And, and we cannot yoke up with them. But if you read these verses on unity and you believe in the universal church, it sounds like we're supposed to. And you get all confused. Well, Amos 3.3 3 says, can two walk together except they be agreed. And, and so uh, we cannot align ourselves ecumenically with other groups that don't believe the Bible or we'll have to reduce our doctrine to the lowest common denominator and we can't do that. What else is wrong with the universal invisible church? Well, secondly, it leads to alien immersion. <laughs> and what do I mean by that? I'm talking about accepting the, the baptism of, of other groups that's, first of all, it doesn't involve folks who are even saved. It doesn't involve the right method of baptism, which is by immersion, and it doesn't, certainly doesn't have proper biblical authority. But if you believe the church is universal, then you just take everybody's baptism. We can't do that. We'll lose our distinctives. Thirdly, the universal church theory, it diminishes faithful attendance or it short circuits faithful attendance in church. If the church is everywhere and the church is everyone, then why attend? Well, Hebrews 10.25 speaks of not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together. And that's a local church verse that talks about, and there's that word assembling again, we are to assemble ourselves together. Now, let me just say, fourthly, universal church philosophy robs God of the tithe. Think about this. If the church is made up of all believers and it's, it's everywhere and it's universal and it's mystical, you can keep your tithe because you are the church. Or you can do whatever you want with it. You can send it to the radio preacher or the television preacher. And in the process, you're robbing real churches of the tithe. We read Matthew or Malachi 3.10 to bring all the tithes into the storehouse. The Old Testament storehouse was the temple. That was destroyed in 70 AD. We have now the New Testament storehouse. And Paul even talked about laying in store 
on the first day of the week that which God hath prospered you with, speaking of the offering. And I believe that the storehouse today is the local church. And I think it stands to reason that if Christ gets glory by the church and he gave the Great Commission to the church, then the financing of the Great Commission has to come through the church, and that's where the, the, the uh, tithe belongs. You know, Christ wasn't against tithing. He advocated even tithing of, of mint and anus and cumin and... and uh, but the universal church philosophy robs God of the tithe. And you say, well, what if, I, what if I, I'm a member here, but I send my tithe to a, a, another scriptural church? That's universal church tithing. The church is not everywhere. Do we follow that? And, and so we're not biblically tithing. Uh, especially if we know better, it's sin. To him that knoweth too good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. But you're also robbing yourself of a blessing. Back to that verse. Notice the end of it. God says, I will open you the windows of heaven and I will pour you out a blessing. I want to be blessed. What's wrong with the universal church philosophy? Well, fifthly, it has no missionaries because it's scattered, it's, it's invisible. It's, why support missions? Number six, what's wrong with it? You don't need to join a, a real New Testament church if you believe in it because supposedly at the moment of conversion, you're in this church. If it's the family of God, if they're one and the same, you're automatically in, in this, quote, church. And the result is this perpetual bouncing around from church to church. We, we have them here all the time, folks. They just come through and they visit. And boy, you ought to have a radio station. You, you hear from them all the time and they're just out there freelancing and, and doing their own thing. But they never commit to that Scripture and Testament church. They, they're just kind of these in and out spectators. And, and they're just from afar. I, the church is everywhere and I'm the church and you're the church. And so the local church is nothing special as a result. So why join it? And it leads to church hopping. And, and after all, one church is good as the other, so we'll just kind of, you know, never sit down and put down roots. Or somebody will come along and say, well, one church is the same as another, especially if they're Baptist churches. Is that true? Are all Baptist churches basically the same? You know, let me just say, I would not put my family in most Baptist churches across the U.S., would you? Now, as a new convert, if you'd have said that, I'd have went, why? What's wrong with that? But if you've been saved any length of time, you know why. And you could not put your family in most Baptist churches. In fact, let me just take it a step further. There are a lot of independent Baptist churches I would not put my family in for a number of reasons. But for this reason alone, they believe in a universal, invisible church. The very thing we're talking about here. You know, there was a guy who wrote a book called The Church Jesus Built, Roy Mason, he said this, there's no mention of a universal church in the Bible. Christians in the early centuries knew nothing of such. In their writings, they don't speak of an all-embracing, spiritual, universal, invisible church. They knew the Greek language too well to try to use the term ecclesia in such a sense. When the Protestant Reformation split the church or the Catholic institution. They rejected the Roman church as the universal visible church, but they did not go back to the New Testament church type. They promoted the universal invisible church. And I said that a moment ago. So in closing, let me just say, when it comes to the, the local church versus the universal church, I think biblically there's, there's uh, no place for universal church. It's been weighed in the, in the balance and found wanting. 
And I, I think it would help us if we understood it to understand that as a local church, we are a team and we are working together and there's a synergy as we do. It's a powerful thing. It's a powerful thing. And it's also God's method. Amen. Well, let's close here. You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Puppet Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.